Are we ready? Yes, sir. Yes. Welcome, everyone, to this Your Amigos podcast. Uh, Tom and I are joined by Michael Stoller. So we are going to talk about some uh, European IKCS uh, abstracts. This meeting is uh, happening, has happened for many years, and uh, back in person this year. Michael, welcome. I'm going to have you introduce yourself briefly, and then um, we're starting to go through the oral abstracts uh, that you're chairing the session for. Just briefly, I am our urologist from the University of Munich. Uh, my main research focus is kidney cancer, um, and I'm pretty excited to be on the programmatic committee of the IKES meeting this year, and I'm really excited to see you all here at the meeting. So, my, so the first abstract we're going to cover is from Christiane Bergerot. Tom, this is work that you've been involved in. It's looking at relevance of the FKSI-19. This is a, one of the quality of life uh, questionnaires, uh, kidney cancer specific. And there was a patient survey done sort of, I think, to look at the relevance of these uh, in the modern era, so to speak, and with our patients. Um, Tom, I don't know if you want to describe that effort a little bit, and then we'll, we'll ask Michael about it. Yeah, so firstly, I've just left the pub with Axel and, uh, and Marta <laughs> and Anna, and I said I'd, I'd say hello. I promised I would because they, they, they just bought me a drink. So I, I promised that I would. So I've done that now. I feel I've, I've fulfilled my obligation. Um, Thank you. The, the, the work, this is Chris's work, but Monty, uh, Powell and yourself and me, and there's a big group of people, uh, Betsy, um, Victor, all sorts of people from around the world trying to get together at the moment, um, and and what Chris uh, and her group have done is, they've they've just got into this questionnaire and asked patients who are on the treatment, you know, so patients who are on VEGF targeted therapy or immune therapy or both, ask those patients on the quality of life questionnaires, which have nineteen questions, this specific question, how many of them are actually genuinely relevant to them right now when they're on treatment. Because we talk about validated quality of life questionnaires, but how were they validated and where were they validated and whom? And, and you know, one of the questions that people ask, or one of those I always ask, is hematuria is a question that appears, you know, how bad is your hematuria? Now, clearly, if you've had a nephrectomy, you've got metastatic clear cell kidney cancer, that's not quite as relevant. And there is this piece around here around saying, well, if you're asking questions that aren't super relevant for immune therapy or other therapies, how can you distinguish between one therapy and another therapy, if you're asking irrelevant questions, clearly they're all going to come back to right. the medium. So when someone says, oh, the quality of life is no worse with this, so well, the hematuria was no worse with that, but the patient didn't have a kidney anymore. So, right. no, you know, and so we're, and actually, and what Chris has shown in this piece of work is when you look in detail and you ask the patients who are on the therapy whether or not they think it's relevant, actually most of the questions seem to be less relevant. In fact, some seem almost entirely irrelevant. And it might come down to the fact that we need to actually look at this in a different way. And I think that's what we're driving towards. And Chris has got a grant um, with the IKCS, the KR, um, which uh, will now move this forward into the next round of what she and her group are trying to achieve. And I hope what she, what, what, what she will achieve is um, not just we didn't find these questions being relevant, but actually we found a different group of questions or similar questions within this that were super relevant. And what? Yeah. I, so, Mike, I'm interested in your thoughts. We, we've talked about quality of life on these podcasts quite a bit lately, and we sort of go back and forth. And they're well, relevant. Well, you go back and forth, Brian. I'm pretty I, consistent, I think. <laughs> how, to, how to apply them. Um, what, is, what is your take, not on the, the survey so much, but just sort of backing up a little bit about quality of so, life and how do you look at that data 
I, I do think it's really interesting that we rely on a questionnaire that was actually validated in 19 patients, and it's a kidney symptom index, but our patients don't have kidney disease. They have kidney cancer, it's a different form of disease, and now we try to like understand symptoms from an oncologic disease based on a questionnaire that was not developed in that situation. And we don't really understand the patient's quality of life based on a kidney symptom index. That's not shocking to me, actually. It is what you kind of expect. And uh, Chris did something that we introduced her to a couple of years ago uh, with a different survey. That is these open-ended questions where you're like, hey, just tell me about you. How, where are you right now in your journey? How do you feel? And that's when we learn that patients have a different understanding of their quality of life than we actually catch with the FKSI or other questionnaires that we have developed so far. I think it's an interesting and fascinating field to develop in the future. And I just remember that one patient who couldn't do anything anymore, but lying back, stare at the wall, but all he was able to do was talk to his kids for five minutes. And we were like, is this quality of life for you? And he's like, that's totally worth fighting for. That is all I'm doing. And I don't want to lose that. Yeah. And Tom, it looks like part of these data were I'm looking at one slide says suggestions of additional questions from patients. So part of this is, as you say, understanding the limitations and relevance of the existing questions, but probably more valuable is, is asking patients what, what questions should we be asking? Is that correct? Yes, it is. But I think we need to look at that second part in more detail. And that really is what this grant is about. Yeah. Um, and it's about the next stage, which is asking much more, as Michael's described, much more open question about saying, you looked at these questions, these are the questions we're asking, are they relevant? Yes or no? It looks like many of them aren't. Which ones do you think we should take forward? How often should we ask these questions? Because at the moment, you know, my concern, I don't know about you guys, I find my life filling out these kind of conflicts of interest forms, whatever it might be. And by the time I've got to the third or fourth box, I'm pretty, I'm reading pretty quickly. And by the time <laughs> box 10 arrives, I'm basically on, you know, I'm on somewhere else. Completely. My, my concentration span is pretty short the rest of the time, to be honest. We, we got it. We um, understand. But 19 questions. And if you're asking every three or four weeks, I suspect if it's the same question being asked every couple of weeks, after a bit, you're just ticking People the boxes on the way down. Yeah. And what about asking three really important questions every six weeks and is that a better model and actually if you look at it patients seem to think less is more and quality is better than quantity and so, we need to move towards that and then i think the next piece as well which is important is of course the expectations in the adjuvant setting are completely different from the metastatic setting right. we're using the same questionnaires what is that what's that about yeah. So let's move on in the interest of time. We're going to go on to the next abstract, which was real world impact of immune checkpoint inhibitors in kidney cancer. It's from Will Ince. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right from Addenbrooke Hospital in Cambridge. And I think this was just a survey of, um, again, as, as described, sort of real world data. And I think what they show is that they show basically survival differences from the use of immune therapy for compared to patients who didn't get immune therapy and also by line of therapy. So, Michael, what was your sort of take-home point from that abstract? 
So I, I do think it's really fascinating to see that the data we see with uh, phase three trials actually dwell down into real world settings. So we saw an increase in overall survival in the trials and we see it in real world data. And that's what I get from it. Um, the earlier you introduce a patient to immunotherapy, maybe it's a combination, maybe it's a, a just IO therapy as monotherapy or combination that prolongs their lives and you should not give up on immunotherapy in any patient. That's what I learned from those guys. Yeah, it was median survival 34 months versus 11 months for immune therapy versus no immune therapy. Obviously, there's, you know, not necessarily matched in other characteristics. There's going to be a lot of bias in that. Yeah, a lot of bias. But still, I think the the take, I think we would all agree that early immune therapy is a good thing. I think that's been proven in randomized trials. I think we would, but I'm always not... I mean, Martin Gore, I sat down with Martin once, said that, you know, if you can't translate your data into real world data, what does it really mean? Um, But I think that, so I think that is really important. I agree with you, Michael. The bit in the real world data I struggle is when you try and compare first line with second line therapy or nephrectomy with no nephrectomy, or you try and ask specific questions because I, there's so much patient bias. So, for example, the patients who don't get nephrectomy clearly have a poor performance status, have more aggressive disease, and guess what? They do less well. And the patients who you know get immune therapy, well, they do less well. But in Cambridge in Europe, um, we haven't been using frontline immune therapy. So basically you're saying if you don't get immune therapy, you only got first-line therapy. So is it first-line yeah. therapy versus second-line therapy? And that's going to explain your 11 months. 36 months is not immune therapy making that big difference and so one of my concerns about real world data is i think it's helpful in broad terms talking about the direction of travel and confirming previous trials what i don't think it's useful for is determining whether frontline immune therapy or second line immune therapy is better or whether nephrectomy should be used or no nephrectomy should be used yeah, and this this looks at immune therapy versus not. It's not really looking at line of therapy. Per no, I wasn't being critical, Brian. I was just kind of adding my bit. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> All right, third <laughs> abstract. Systemic review of heterogeneity in outcome definition and reporting in localized kidney cancer. This is Katharina Baer, uh, King's College of London. And Michael, this is more in your world. This is about surgical reporting. So I think this looks at basically the way that data is reported in surgical series and how the actual outcome measures are a bit all over the place. Is that, is that what you took from it? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it seems like everybody's reporting on just sheer surgical data, like how long does it take them? Um, what is the blood loss? How long does the patient have to stay in a hospital? And, and data like that. I'm, I'm really a little bit disappointed that we as surgeons haven't come up with a better way of reporting on our surgical results because I do think we do that not for ourselves, which this kind of reporting tends to to report. Uh, We do it for the patient and for the patient, it doesn't matter if he's in the OR for two or three hours, it matters whether the tumor is gone. So Mm -hmm. is your resection status uh, clear? Do you have clear margins in that specimen? Is there a difference in terms of survival from your, from your procedure? Um, Do we actually influence that with the surgical attempt or procedure in a significant way and how do we actually identify those patients at risk of recurrence and maybe those patients who don't need surgery in the first place and um, she actually does a nice job um, 
holding up the mirror and saying, hey, guys, this is what you do. You need to do better. We want to challenge your reporting a little bit. This is not enough. And, and I think that's a fair point. And I think the, the last slide talks about this core outcome set, you know, how to create a core outcome set for kidney cancer. And at least from best I can tell from the slides where it talks about that it's being done in some other urology fields like prostate cancer, sort of a systematic way of reporting, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, let's get to the last abstract we're going to talk about, which is probably the most controversial. This is Bernard Escudier's abstract that's looking at one of the original cohorts of Checkmate 90R was actually in uh, an Ipinevo Cabo arm. So we're familiar with 90R, uh, Cabo Nevo versus Nitinib that's been reported and, and published. Um, there was an initial triplet arm of that trial that was discontinued about four and a half years ago, December of 17. We're just seeing the data now. Um, that's being reported. So it was, it was discontinued for, for whatever reason. Um, obviously, that triplet's being tested in a separate study, but we're now seeing the data from that original 50-patient cohort. So maybe, Mike, I'm just going to summarize the, the high-level data. And the first question is sort of, you know, what are your thoughts when you see this? So this was 50 patients, very typical in terms of their characteristics that you would expect in a phase three trial in kidney cancer. In terms of clinical outcome, the progression-free survival by independent review is 9.9 months by investigator, it jumped up to 13.9 months. The response rate I'm trying to find, I think was 40 some percent, 44 percent, 48 per investigator, 44 for independent with a, this is interesting, complete response of 8% per independent review, but 0% per investigator. So some, some differences in those um, independent versus investigator, but nonetheless, um, and then some, some toxicity data, grade three toxicity, 56%. Grade four, 28%, although a lot of those were lab abnormalities, lipase, amylase, and LFTs. So just on the surface, 50 patient study of this triplet, what, what strikes you about this data set? So I think what's interesting is we do have a PFS of a triplet that is shorter than of a duplet. So Nevo Cabo has 17 months. And now we, if we take the better um, PFS here, we're at 14 months, which is like one cycle shorter. That is kind of striking. Why, why is that the case? The response rate is lower than what we've seen. Interestingly, the, the complete response rate is different, is no different in, in compared to the, the duplet here. Um, the, the side effects are, are much higher if you sum them up. Um, the discontinuation is much higher, um, and we actually do have a median overall survival that they are reporting here, which is 36 months, months, and it was not reached in the in the duplet in the Nevo Cabo. So um, I I don't know what those data are and what how we can actually put them into perspective. I'm a little bit disappointed because I would have expected a higher toxicity, but also a higher response in those patients and more durable um, results than what we've seen here. I mean, so- I I guess that with 50 patients, it's hard to look at medians and um, and and so you know we, one can make cross trial comparisons with, but. I think the efficacy signal, there is some uncertainty around that still. Um, but um, I, I agree that the response rate is lower than, and clearly Len Penn's got a response rate of 70%, and it doesn't look like 70% from the back of the room. Um, 
But Tom, I, it, it, I mean, it's still a 50 patient study. It's prospective. It's independent review. So it's not a tiny data set. I mean, you know, yeah, no, but I think, you know, I agree with that. But I think comparing median values, medians are at the best pretty unstable. And so comparing medians across different trials with only 50 patients is difficult. Um, I'd be, I, mean, I think the tolerability profile is a different question. And I think that's more, you know, how many patients had to discontinue for adverse events? Were there treatment-related deaths? Were the discontinuations much higher? I actually see that, in my opinion, as being potentially more helpful um, because it will give us some idea of how well the trip. But at the same time, I think it's also fair to say the cure rate, you know, the trip that's not curing half the patients, and that's clearly the case. Yeah. And in any of these trials we look at, or it's COSMIC 313, the trial, if these results are reproduced, it's going to end up being disappointing. There's also, I guess, a piece around saying, well, you know, the first cohort of a trial and the first triplets and sites weren't very kind of comfortable with the, the regime to start with. And, you know, it's well, they, they talk about that in the in the conclusions. It says that the data should be interpreted in context of patient demographics, which I don't understand. I think these patient demographics were pretty typical and similar and limited experience with the triplet regimen. So that's kind of implying what you just stated. Well, we didn't really know how to use the triplet well. Maybe we didn't you know, modify, dose modify, or hold drugs appropriately. Therefore, we saw more toxicity and therefore it was less yeah. effective. Is that, is, do you I buy mean, that? I, I mean, there's there's only one thing that was striking to me. They reported that um, a significant proportion of patients in that arm was from Mexico and the U.S. And maybe they didn't have access to later line therapies in Mexico or whatever. I, I don't really quite get it. You'd there. still like a higher response rate, though. Right. Yeah, that yeah you do. You do. That's right. You still, yeah, the, I mean, the patient demographics is pretty typical. On, on the other hand, it, it, it just is asking... Does a VGFR inhibitor kind of contradict the job that the CTLA-4 is doing in the initial phase of the therapy? You know, if you combine, it, it's not the question here, the PDL and the VGF, we would know that that works. But the CTLA-4 and the VGF inhibition, that could actually be detrimental to to, to uh, some reasons that we don't understand, maybe we're inhibiting uh, CTLs with a VGFR or whatever. Um, this is kind of a question, does this mechanism fly or not, or would it better to sequence it out? So, Tom, you alluded to this. Um, I mean, I think we all agree the results are maybe a little disappointing on the efficacy front for maybe what we would have expected given the Nebo Cabo data, et cetera. And we can talk about all the caveats, fine, but there's still the numbers are low. Does this make you, you know, less hopeful from a cosmic 313 standpoint? Or do you say, well, you know, it's small. It was almost five years ago. It was early experience. And and, you know, I'm still hopeful for 313. I mean, so look, I mean, I, th I think that that I think that it's fair to say that if this was our, our randomized phase if this was the result of our phase two trial and lots of people got into a room and they said this is going to beat len pen in a it's a control arm in a randomized phase three with response rates of 73 and pfs of 24 months i think many people would look at that and say well that doesn't look like that's the case with the current triplet um right. so I, I you know and, and i think when you just boil it down to you know a versus b or a plus b plus c versus D plus E, whatever you want it to be, you look at it and say, you know, with what we know now, does this look like 
the, the, the game changer. Of course, an 8% CR rate or 0% CR rate. You know, we were talking when we designed the trial, hoping for 33% CR rate. But there are still some key questions which can, can be that, that are going to be answered. And the reality comes back to what I said previously is that, you know, we've done lots of small trials in the past which haven't shown clear efficacy signals. And we've now got a, you know, a 900 patient randomized phase three definitive trial, which is going to tell us the answer to these questions. Um, if the results are consistent with this, it's going to be disappointing. I think if the results are very different, I suspect this, these results will be taken in the context of a historical rather than practice changing concepts. I don't think, you know, if there is a survival advantage with a hazard ratio of 0 0.70, for cosmic 313 i don't think people come back to this cohort and say well this is no you shouldn't give not. it so and so in the reality i don't think these data are that consequential i think the adverse event profile of the triplet is clearly useful information for for people who are treating the disease at the moment and for people who uh, have, have patients on the trial i think it's useful to know what you know what what we've seen before so I think it's helpful from a tolerability perspective, but from an efficacy perspective, it's going to be trumped one way or another by the randomized phase three. If the randomized phase three reproduces this, everyone's going to say, well, that's disappointing. And if the randomized phase three shows something completely different, people say, well, in the end, this is, it just shows us the flaws of doing you know, rapid single arm trials. And perhaps this data was, you know, in some respects, counterproductive. Well, right, but but normally you would get a signal from this phase two to design your phase three, and I think we would agree this signal, as you said, wouldn't. If it was your money, you wouldn't have taken it forward. Yeah, to three but you know, if you signal. go to the lung cancer community, or dare I say it, even in kidney cancer, the IDO data, you know, we launched randomized phase three off a handful of patients, um, <laughs> well, and that, so, that ended up being negative. Right? Sure, <laughs> but but so I don't think we should put this as the the, the standout. You know, example of how not to do it. I think, in reality, it makes a lot of. This is a really, really important question in, in prostate cancer. Brian, we did a podcast last week: triplet therapy versus doublet therapy. Give it all at no, the beginning. Of course, the it's patients important. were as well. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. and the question it's remains important. And this fifty patients, I think, is distracting from that. In fact, I think it's so important. I wish they would have just left this arm in the study, right? No, I agree. Yeah. Or not done it at all. Or, but I don't, I don't think this. Right. You know, I don't think this data at this time point helps us that much. Michael, let me ask you a more difficult question. The, the, this cohort stopped accrual four and a half years ago in December of 2017. Where, where's the data been? I mean, these data, you know, we can argue how useful they are or not. But if I'm a patient going on Cosmic 313, I might want to know these data, right? Because clearly there's some toxicity here and limited efficacy. So where, where have they been? Well, I, I think they've been sipping, sitting with the sponsor and the sponsor was not willing to release them. Um, maybe not to like reduce accrual of the cosmic trial. I don't know. And I think it's hard to push sponsors in that area to re release data that they don't want to release. And I'm, I'm pretty sure there was some business decision behind that that we really don't understand. And I'm grateful to Bourbon Art that he pushed for the data to be published and that we finally get a hand on them and, and further understanding what's going on. Um, it's a really good question. I, I don't really understand. And I think you're making a good point. It's not fair towards your patients. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, again, I, I don't have insight into to what took so long. I'm glad it's being presented because, you know, we can, it, it's just something to talk about, right? I mean, it is important data. These, you know, triplets are coming, whether it's this triplet or another triplet. So it is important to understand is there an efficacy signal? Is there a toxicity signal? Even if we have other big trials pending, 
you know, I think understanding the, in this case of like what would be a phase two context would be important. Yeah. And if you buy into a concept like that as a patient and you have all those drugs thrown at you in the first uh, phase of your therapy, of course, you're willing to undergo all those toxicity for the benefit of, of a response or a duration, uh, a durable response uh, mm -hmm. uh, anyhow. But you need to see that it's worth it. You're willing to do it, but you need to see it's worth. And maybe it's not worth um, putting all our second line options into the first line space at this point of time with these mechanisms that we have. Yeah. Tom, any final comments on this, this abstract? That's our last one. Otherwise, it... I really enjoyed it, Michael, and looking forward to seeing you really soon. I do too. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.